1: Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing
0: in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret, and today I am talking to Gaia Bernstein. She is a law professor who writes... Teaches and lectures in the intersection of law, technology, health, and privacy. Gaia is also the mother of three children who grew up in a world of smartphones, iPads, and social networks. Her new book, Unwired Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies, shatters the illusion that we can control how much time we spend on our screens. Welcome, Gaia. Thank you for having me, Margaret. This is a very, it's an issue that everyone is dealing with, I would say right now. I have an 11, 12, and 14-year-old, and so I feel like this issue is now suddenly the presenting issue. I look back on the days when I had a baby with, you know, oh, should I let them ever play on the iPad? And I'm like, oh, those were the good old days. Now it is as you say, kind of crushing in around us this reality. The book starts, you have an aha moment. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, about coming out of yoga class and kind of realizing the scope of what was going on?
2: Yeah, so I think it was for me around 2015, and around that time, people were not really talking about this issue. I was not even paying attention to myself. And I live in New York City, and I was, as you said, I came out of a yoga class, and I went to get some coffee, and there were 15 people ahead of me in line. And usually, I would have probably taken my phone out, but for some reason, maybe it was the influence of the yoga class, I decided not to. And I just looked around, and nobody was looking back. Everybody was staring down. And I think that was the first moment for me when I realized that something was really, really different and wrong here.
0: And I think that moment of you look around a restaurant and everybody is looking down at their phone or you look around, you know, any space, a playground and the kids are playing and the moms are all staring at their phone. We have these instincts of like, there's something clearly wrong with this picture. But like a lot of issues we face as parents, it's not as simple as like, well, we just need to get our behavior together. We need to stop being so lame as people. And so as we start to look at the problem, is it just that you know we're all sort of totally sucked in by these devices i guess let's start on a hopeful note is there some hope to break this because it does seem so pervasive
2: i definitely think there's hope and i i think my book is an optimistic book. yes it is i think we just have we've been focusing in a place which didn't work as well we have been focused on the idea that something is wrong with us as people, as parents, why am I not getting any work done because I'm just surfing the internet and answering texts? Why can't I get my child off the phone? People are asking what's wrong with their kids. Are they addicts? What's wrong with their family? And trying to control it in different ways. And I think the hope is making this shift from this internal battles or battles in our homes towards
0: the public spheres to doing things collectively. Because you make the argument in the book that this is not just behavior, personal failure behavior, that this is tech companies are figuring out very specifically how to keep us on our phones. So let's talk about some examples that you give in the book, one being the intermittent reward model. Tell us about this, because I think as we talk about this, friends who are listening, It's to say, this is not happening by accident. This is not just, oh, you're so lame that you look at your phone too much. This is designed by design. So we're talking about intermittent reward model.
2: Yeah, so absolutely. So basically, tech companies want to keep us online for as long as possible. And they use several design mechanisms, which are really derived from basic psychological principles that target our human vulnerabilities. Intermittent reward model is one of these, which is very, and the designs are prevalent all over the internet. And the idea is that when we get rewards on an irregular basis, our brain will trans, uh, release more of the neurotransmitter dopamine which uh, gives us pleasure. So if you go to a casino and you see people standing at the slot machine and keep pulling and pulling the handle and sometimes they get money, well, they don't know when they're going to get the coins. So they keep going and going. Many, many of the features online are designed exactly the same way. Uh, so if you think about it, you know, when you have a Facebook account or an Instagram account. You don't know when you're going to get comments or likes. I mean, I post something, and I think this is going to get lots of reactions, and nothing happened. And may post the same thing the next day, and suddenly people are reacting. We don't know, so it makes us react much more, and everything is based on this. The notifications on our phone, we don't know when we're going to get that. We don't even know when we're going to get an email, And, or if you think about Tinder, if you're dating, and so you're, if you're swiping, you don't know when you're going to get a match. And this is devised everywhere in children's games through a feature called loot boxes, which is like surprise boxes. They don't know when they're going to get extra powers. And so it just keeps us hooked to getting more and more of these dopamine bursts. So if you're sitting and waiting with your child, you have nothing to do. You sort of want to get something and you just look at your phone hoping for the next dopamine.
0: You also talk about the concept in the book of infinite scroll, which I just had a day yesterday where I was like, it's my day off. I'm going to relax. And I ended up, I think about taking a gym class that's 45 minutes, it seems like 10 hours. I think about taking a three-hour plane ride, it seems like nine hours. And then I just was sitting, I was outside, but I was just scrolling on my phone like it's my day off. And, and it just the time passed so fast. And I think I was thinking about your idea of infinite scroll. So will you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so that's another example where tech companies, and they're, by the way, employing groups
0: of psychologists to design these things. This is super interesting. Psychologists, like they are going deep to say, how do I keep people as engaged as possible in this platform?
2: Right, so basically they took this very famous soup experiment. and the soup experiment, one group got a regular bowl of soup and the other group got a bowl of soup with no bottom, so there was no stopping cues. The group which had no bottom ate seventy percent more soup. It had no idea they were doing it. <laughs> this is the infinite scroll. Basically, if you go on Twitter, you go on Instagram, you go on Facebook. There is never an end. There's never an end to the page. So they've taken away stopping cues, just like they took these people's bottom off the soup. So, and it's all over the internet taking away stopping cues. If you think about it, if you go on uh, YouTube, if there's autoplay on TikTok. Once a video ends, another one begins. Same thing as if you go on Netflix. If you want to see a movie, the next ep- or a show is even better. And the next
0: episode starts immediately. Our stopping cues are gone, so we just spend so much time online. I find with TikTok and I, I'm an older person for TikTok, but there is something about it's like the roulette version of it or the, the something about the unknown that you could swipe next and it could be someone decorating a cake or someone talking about their devastating illness or someone talking about the news or a cute puppy. There is something about TikTok that I find extremely hard to stop. Like, when do I stop? The missing stopping cue there is really tough for me. Right. Right. And And for kids, even more, probably. I'm sure that's right. And then, of course, we hear the term algorithm all the time, right? Like, well, the algorithm this and the algorithm that. Is it the algorithm that is keeping us engaged? Like, what is the role of the algorithm? So the
2: algorithm is basically designed to make sure that we're engaged for longer so it learns. So let's take Facebook, for example. They discovered that people will stay online for longer if their post
0: makes them angry. Oh, yeah. I've heard that, right? That you're more engaged if you're angry than if you're just like, oh, that's a nice bubble. Right. So hate and anger
2: keep you online for longer. So if a post uh, gets angry reactions, it gets more points than if it gets likes or loves. And then it will show on more people's feeds. So it gets promoted. And that's exactly the result of a learning algorithm. And they probably didn't start with that, but that's what they've discovered.
0: Yeah. And is it, I mean, is that, what is the psychology that like we, because I definitely find that like when things are breaking that are juicy, gossipy, whether it's a reality show I follow or something political, like, If I know everybody's going to be snarking about it, that's when I tend to be like, I got to be on Twitter checking it out. Like, what is that human instinct? I guess it's just that we feel more connected through anger and outrage.
2: Well, it seems that people feel more connected to groups when there's an other they can be against. And that explains a lot of what we've been seeing in society, lots of disconnect and division All of this was done in order, I mean, as I said, I don't think that's what they meant at the start, but that's what they discovered keeps us online for longer. And I think it's important to understand this is all part of a business model. I mean, the reason they need us online for longer is that we get Gmail for free, we get Facebook for free, and we pay with our time and with our data. So they need us to be there for longer so they can collect more information on us to target better advertising to us. Then they want us there for longer, so we'll see the advertising and buy the products. So they can't really afford for us not to be there because the whole business model in which most of the internet economy is based will crumble. And that's what's so scary about
0: this. I want to drill down on that when we come back. We are talking to Gaia Bernstein. She is the author of Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. And we'll be right back.
1: Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your lumen. That is L U M E N dot M E, lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode.
0: So I think the point that really hit home for me in this book is that the blame for kids and technology or the kind of stopgap measure for like, well, if you don't want your kids doing all of this, like, I guess you should be a better parent. I guess you should keep your kids off of screens as if like, we talk sometimes about the recycling example, like, oh, this all really comes down to you washing out your salad container. No, it's actually a huge international policy that is going on that is causing a ton of this. It's not, yes, you should maybe try to rinse out your salad container, but it's not like the weight of this all falls on parents. So let's talk a little bit about that and how this comes down to an argument of personal responsibility when we're not really clear what it is we're up against.
2: Right. So I think for me, I started researching the book, Looking at the Past, and I realized there was a connection between the wars against tobacco, the wars uh, against junk food to protect privacy. And it seemed like whenever a large industry, the truth comes out and people realize that the product is harming consumers, then their legal method, the PR method is also, it's a legal uh, mechanism is, well, the consumers chose the product, they're responsible for what's happening. So with uh, cigarettes, basically, smokers sued cigarette companies because they were sick with lung cancer and dying. And the cigarette companies said, well, you chose to smoke and it's your responsibility. And they won for decades in court. And same thing with food. A group of teenagers sued McDonald's in New York. Uh, because they were sick with um, diabetes and they were obese and McDonald's said the same thing. Nobody forced you to eat at McDonald's. Nobody forced you to supersize. And the New York court agreed and they, they held it you know, the kids were responsible, not the junk food industry. So that's what's happening with tech. But I think tech companies have taken it a step further. I mean, yes, we have game manufacturers saying, well, it's all the parents fought and, you know, the kids are playing, but Basically, they're also giving us tools to make us feel responsible. So all these digital well-being tools we have, like uh, how much time you've been on your phone, you can see your screen time, or you can limit your time on an app, you can turn your phone great, you can use parental controls to limit your kid's time. All these things are not really meant for us to spend less time online and also not really for our kids to spend less time online because they don't target the addictive features we just discussed. They don't target the infinite scroll, for example. What are there for is for us to feel responsible, to feel our control. And then if we fail, if even though you put parents in control on your kid's computer and phone and they're still somehow using it or they're fighting with you, it's your fault. And I think that's a big part from where the blame is coming from. It's so... I mean, TikTok has a video saying you're in control.
0: Right. You're not. I'm not in control on TikTok. I'm going to tell you right now, I lose control very easily on that TikTok. It's like personal responsibility is king, maybe particularly so in the US. I mean, it seems like, well, everything comes down to like, well, do it or don't do it. But if cigarettes are being marketed to kids and designed to be as addictive as possible and food is being pumped with sugar and fat in a perfect combination to make it as craveable as possible and screens are designed in every way with these casino type settings to be like there's no clock there's no watch there's no way to tell how long you've been there then it's suddenly like well it's your responsibility is that that's basically the thesis correct Right. Yeah. And it's sort of, and you're right about it
2: being very stronger than you U.S. because there's a very strong social ethos of self-choice and self-responsibility. So it plays into this.
0: Yeah. But that push notifications and other things that pull us back to screens, they can overcome whatever personal responsibility we're attempting to engage in, right? I mean, it's like, it's designed to overcome your feeling of personal responsibility.
2: Right. But the thing is, in the end, we just sit there blaming ourselves all the time, thinking something is wrong with us or with the children. And that's not the point, really
0: right I mean blaming ourselves but also to be very fair being blamed by everybody else right that like everybody what we're hearing is like well kids today you know back in our day back in the 80s oh the bikes were on the lawn and kids were just hanging out together but nowadays these lazy parents just have their kids home in front of screens or back in my day we used to read books but nowadays parents don't care about books they only care about their kids having the latest screen but it's not really, I mean, parents are fighting against this giant machine that is sending this stuff into our kids' hands, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I guess then the question, and I guess we'll take a break and come back and try to start figuring out how do we like, it feels like, oh, we're little against this big, big machine. And we're going to talk about some solutions when we come back. I am talking to Gaia Bernstein. She is the author of Unwired,
1: Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's her dot
0: and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread.
1: And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's
0: S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. Okay. So in our third section, this feels like it's the solutions are it feels daunting, I guess, as a problem because it does feel like okay, giant machine coming at us, we kind of lone parents being like put your phones away doesn't seem to be working. So, but as you said, your book is very optimistic, very positive, and there are a lot of solutions offered. And let's start with kind of the redirecting our energies from individual battles over the phones. Right. So I think uh,
2: basically acting collectively instead of at home means several things. It means applying pressure on technology companies to redesign their products. So, I mean, and that doesn't mean we'll not have screens. It doesn't mean we'll not have phone. This is not going to happen. Neither should it. But it doesn't have to look like this. Our phones don't have to be so addictive. Our apps don't have to be so addictive, but we never really made a choice. And we never, it says no imagination to how things could look differently. So there are many ways in which they could be redesigned and there are different legal measures to exert pressure. The other way is to change how we use technology in spaces, in classrooms, in restaurants. And that's, I think, a place where it's more collective efforts of people, business owners, parents, than even law professionals.
0: We have talked a lot about this in terms of the classroom and that some of the classroom stuff is very like branded and corporate and you're sending your kids to what you think is this sort of generic school environment. And suddenly there's a lot of corporations that are lobbying to get technology into your kids' hands in school. And it's something, again, like it feels a little bit like, oh God, another battle to fight, but it is really important. So let's talk a little bit about school and how this technology affects kids in school. So I think it's
2: important to understand where we're coming from. We're coming from a place where the federal policy, and not just in the U.S., all over the world, is the more technology, the better in the classroom. The idea is kids will be better off with technology. We're not preparing them for the future without it. And this has been going on for a while, even though the studies showed, the big studies, that actually technology does not teach better than Teachers And so the outcomes are not better. Even in closing the gaps between populations, that's not what happened. So then the thing is, it didn't progress so fast because teachers wanted to teach in the old methods. But then came the pandemic, and that's exactly what you're describing is what really took off during the pandemic because teachers started teaching with Roblox and Minecraft who now have great large education departments they started posting their lectures on TikTok. And once they learned these methods and the kids also came back from the pandemic to the classroom and were so used just getting the dopamine boost, it became very difficult to even go back. So I think that you have to change the way we think about this and to change the policy. But you can do this in an individual school level, even in a classroom, in a district level. Incorporating the technology in the classroom should be the case only that technology is better than a teacher. If you have a quiz that works better than, you know, for a game, then for a test, do that. But first of all, evaluate it. Again, no technology should be in a classroom as it's, it's
0: doing something there that's useful, like coding, for example. I think this is super useful as a mindset shift, because I know that a lot of schools tout their technology use as a huge benefit, that like a school that is super technical, and uses the latest technology is often touted as like a superior school. I know my sister-in-law who's been on the podcast runs a progressive school where they, you know, build stuff with rocks and sticks and, and that, they're teaching kids in a very, very hands-on way. They can be much more functional than technology, but that's why I really love this book and this perspective shift for parents that don't always hear technology as a value add. It's not necessarily that technology is better than a kind of hands-on learning or a more traditional learning style. Technology is not necessarily better than lack of technology.
2: Right. And uh, also the issue of screens. I mean, screens could be limited according to age. There should be a limit of how many hours of screen. Uh, There's no reason for kids to read on screens in the classroom. Actually, the studies show that the comprehension is lower when they read on screens, even though that's not what they think. And then the thing is, if you are doing classwork on screens, when you come home, homework is on screens. So what happens in the class filters into the home, and if your kid has Minecraft as schoolwork, it legitimizes Minecraft, which was chosen as the most addictive game of all times by Wired Magazine. So how can you tell your child no when he just have a teacher assigning it? So it's really important to start with schools because it changes
0: the norms and it also delay things for kids. Yes, And I think that's really an interesting point that like I hear like, well, they're using Minecraft to learn. It's like, oh, they're making learning fun. But there is another side to it. And it really is like they're making learning connected to these like very big corporate games that are targeting kids to stay playing them for as long as possible. And that Minecraft camp is now the big thing and like everything is kind of leaning in. And I think that before I read this book, I very much had the perspective of like, oh, that's a clever way to engage kids. And it helps to really see the flip side as technology, like screens are already so pervasive that we don't need everybody being like, here's how to learn more on screens.
2: Right. And do you know that effects accumulate? The more dopamine boost, the more impact on kids' brains and, and cognitive development all the way to 18,
0: mental health. If you add school work, school time to home time. Yeah, you're just exacerbating what's already going on. You talk about programming for overuse is not a functional necessity. This also seemed very useful to me as a takeaway that fighting against default settings that extend use and seeing that programming settings that limit use would be very powerful. So can you walk us through what that looks like a little bit?
2: Right. So when I talk about redesigning technologies, how do you redesign? So, you know, when we get a phone now, the default option is unlimited time. If you decide to be very proactive for yourself, for your kids, you could limit the time. But the way we we conceive default settings, and that's what the studies show, we think about it as a recommendation and we are less likely to change it and we're more likely to go back to it. So if the defaults were different, for example, let's say you've got your phone with only two hours per day, you could change it. But the default was two hours. It changes your mindset. And with all these the tech companies are coming out with the digital well-being measures, they never ever, and they would not do that,
0: put the limited time as a default because they know what default does. Yes. Because you're, the bottom of the bowl of soup tells you it's time to stop eating. And you don't really understand that you're being told that. But It's, I mean, we have this talk around food all the time that if you're served something on a plate, a giant plate, you don't have any sense of like it's time to stop eating. If you're served a normal portion on a normal size plate, then it's like I have to make an active decision to refill my plate versus a passive decision to like, okay, there's still two-thirds of this eggplant parmesan, I guess I'll just keep eating it. And that is similar to like if your phone said, Hey, it's been two hours time to stop now, might it tell you, oh, wait, that is actually signaling me that I have been on for too long versus once a week, you kind of get this, your screen time was up by four hours last week. And you're like, oh, that sounds terrible. Anyway, forget about it. Let's move on. And so where does the default setting come from? Does it come from us figuring out how to program it into the phone? Or are we talking about lobbying governments to say the tech companies Where is the solution practically? So I think it's
2: about applying pressure on tech companies and that's already happening. And I think that's what I showed in the book because people don't see the whole picture. There's so much work already being done legally. And that's why I would like people to feel more hopeful because there's so much awareness now and there's so much action. So whether it is uh, class actions of parents against uh, social networks for addicting kids or against games for addicting kids, or we have laws, bills, which are now trying to regulate social media. And there is antitrust action against big tech, all these things together. It's not going to be in a one huge Supreme court case. That's going to fix this. It's not going to happen. Tech is fixed. No, right. But these things, all this pressure over time will make, I believe, tech uh, companies change these designs. And I think at the end, the business model has to change. Because the problem is as long as the business model is based on our time as a resource, even if specific designs change, then they would come up with new one. So I think it's a much bigger thing, but I think we're already in the middle of the way. And I think another thing that's very hopeful, uh, most of this action is bipartisan, which we don't see in many other things. And that's really really good because we can see things moving forward. It started 2019, it stopped during the pandemic
0: and last year and especially this year things have really picked up. Yeah, and you make the parallel which I thought was very useful and it really helped me understand it of like tobacco. And that we decide collectively that this is not good for us. It's not good for kids. And then we fight it not on the level of like, well, if you smoke, you're a loser. Too bad. You made a bad choice. That we start to say, as a society, we want to figure out how to limit this behavior because it's not good for us as a group.
2: Right, especially and usually when you see change, it comes from children Mm -hmm. because we don't see children as being able to make their choices or being responsible. So even this very strong defense of uh, personal responsibility breaks here. And so, I mean, kids are not allowed to buy cigarettes uh, until age 21 in most states. This, I mean, adults can do what they want. And we see many and so we're seeing even when we look at regulation of social networks, there are laws... Trying to prohibit kids or trying to eliminate addictive features for kids. But really, that's the way out for all of us. Because if addictive features are eliminated for kids at the end, they will just be out. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, if technology is not, um, it's not like alcohol. It's not like cigarettes. It's sort of, we all share it. So once things start changing, they couldn't share. They can change for society. You no, know, within, not
0: just in one country, but in different countries and for mm. children and adults as well. This book, Unwired, gaining control over addictive technologies has so many takeaways, both for the personal and for the societal aspects. Tell us where people can find your writing and where they can find the book. Well, the
2: book is available anywhere you would buy your books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, My
0: website is GaiaBernstein.com. And that's where people can find you. Yes. (laughs) Fantastic. We will link to our bookshop link for the book and also to Gaia's website. Thank you so much for talking to us today. This was such a useful conversation. Thank you so much for having me.